Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, President of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. We invite you to take your Bible and join me in the book of Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. And as you're turning there, let me say first of all how appreciative I am of your prayers uh, and encouragement leading up to uh, the message today. It's also a blessing uh, to know that... uh, uh, in advance of delivering this, I wanted the input of people that I believe in and trust very much. And so I sent what I'm going to share today to uh, to Johnny Hunt, uh, to uh, Al Moeller, and to Tom Rayner. Uh, and it is a delight to my heart to know that each of those men uh, shared their thoughts and gave me uh, input. And also each of them fully and completely endorses Uh, what I'm going to be sharing uh, this morning, and that brings great encouragement to my heart uh, as I know that some of the things I share will perhaps be controversial among some people, and so it's good to know that you have brothers that uh, believe you're tracking in the right direction. But in Acts chapter 1, verse 4 through verse 8, the Bible says, And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the end of the earth. Following his resurrection, Jesus spent uh, 40 days with his disciples, preparing them for the assignment uh, that they would have once he had ascended. So he led them out to Mount Olivet, where he would return to the Father. However, just prior to his ascension, the disciples wanted to have what we could call a theological conversation or discussion concerning matters of eschatology. Specifically, they asked, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Notice that Jesus did not rebuke them for asking what is certainly an interesting question. His response, however, does indicate that it was not the most important question. Indeed, his response reveals that the better question is this. What should we do until you do come again and establish your kingdom? And to that question, he provides a definitive answer in the Acts version of the Great Commission found in verse 8. Be my witnesses. In essence, Jesus was saying to his followers, do not get distracted over issues that are secondary and non-essential. Stay focused on the main thing. Make sure your priorities line up with the Father's. Be my witnesses and advance the kingdom until I return. Like the disciples... Southern Baptists today run the risk of being distracted from the main thing. Many of the issues that we are emphasizing and debating today are interesting, but they're not the most important. They don't line up well with the priorities that we find revealed in Holy Scripture. The result is this. We are fractured and we are factionalizing. 
We're confused having lost our spiritual compass. We have reached, many of us believe, what Alvin Reed describes as a tipping point. We have tragically devolved into a giant movement now in decline, experiencing far too much ineffectiveness in gospel ministry and the fulfillment of the Great Commission. So I have a question. How do we change this? And how do we experience a much-needed course correction? How do we, by God's grace and for His glory, get in sync with the Savior's heart, a heart that cried out in Luke 19.10, I have come to seek and to save that which is lost. I'm going to share this morning, and I pray humbly, and certainly with no illusion that I have all the answers. What I'm calling 12 axioms or values that I believe can help move the Southern Baptist Convention in the right direction. Many of these principles are being talked about all across our convention, and people get excited and energized when that happens. I would submit that the Great Commission has been defined for us in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. And so the principles or axioms that I will give simply describe what the implementation of a Great Commission resurgence for Southern Baptists might look like in the days ahead. Now, before I get into them, let me say this. It is not too bold to say that both frustration and anticipation is building among our people. And that the time is now right to put the former behind us and to pursue the latter with a laser beam focus guided and directed by what so many of us believe God is leading us to embrace. Indeed, it is hard to imagine the evil one leading us to intensify our involvement in what the blogging demon Wormwood called that cursed commission. But I do think all the demons of hell would do all that they can to keep us and to get us distracted from it. And so what must happen to make us ready for and get us moving in a God-sent Great Commission resurgence? My agenda is purposefully positive and forward-looking, and I share what I pray will be an encouragement To all of us today, number one, we must commit ourselves to the total and absolute lordship of Jesus Christ in every area of life. Colossians 3.17 says, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Why? The answer is given in verse 24 of that same chapter, for you serve the Lord Christ. Jesus Christ must be our passion. And he must be our priority. That is the starting point for a great commission resurgence. We must aspire to know him and love him more fully. We must long to see him, as Colossians 1.18 says, come to have first place in everything. Indeed, to miss this is to miss everything and to never even get out of the starting blocks in a great commission resurgence. Southern Baptists, I believe, need to become more than ever what I'm calling a Jesus-intoxicated people, returning to our first love as Revelation 2, 4, and 5 admonishes us. Indeed, a Christ-centered life, it will of necessity inform our theology, but will also inspire right missional service. And therefore, we must love Him, worship Him, adore Him, exalt in Him, share Him, and exemplify Him. Within the family of Southern Baptists, we have often been described as a people of the book, and that is a good thing, and that should never be lost. However, if we are indeed a people of the book, then we should be in love with the person the book points us to, and his name is Jesus. When the world thinks of us, 
They should think first, quote, those are the folks in love with Jesus. They are the people obsessed with Jesus. There is a people that talk and act and serve and love like Jesus. Southern Baptists are Jesus people. Would to God that that would be what the world thinks of when they think of Southern Baptists. We indeed need the ministry of the Holy Spirit to lead us to this new and fresh intimacy and communion with our Savior. This must be first and foremost any other agenda is to get the first and most important thing wrong from the very beginning. Number two, we must be gospel-centered in all our endeavors for the glory of God. Paul reminds us in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. Therefore, the lordship of Jesus Christ and his gospel is what it is all about. It's why we exist as the people of God. I believe being gospel-centered will also enable us to be grace-centered. It means we will be loving the people Jesus loves and reaching out to those rejected and even scorned by the Pharisees of our day. Legalism embedded in our traditions to which we are often blind must be exposed. They must be confessed and they must be repented of. And a gospel-centered agenda can help that happen. Indeed, being gospel-centered means we proclaim his victory over death, hell, the grave, and sin by his substitutionary atonement and glorious resurrection. It means we will be gospel-centered for our justification, gospel-centered for our sanctification, and gospel-centered in anticipation of our glorification. In other words, we must be gospel-centered from beginning to end. Pursuing all things for the glory of God means we will be theocentric, and not anthropocentric in our worship and work. Indeed, the supremacy of God in Christ through the Spirit in all things will be the engine that drives us. A radically gospel-centered life will then enable and ensure that the bloody cross of a crucified king is the offense to non-believers and not our styles, not our traditions, not our legalisms, not our moralisms, not our preferences, and not our sourpuss attitudes. And tragically, we are far too often known for those things rather than being Jesus people and being gospel focused and centered. Indeed, a radically gospel centered life will promote a grace filled salvation from beginning to end, putting on display the beauty of the gospel in all of life's aspects. It will remind us that we do not obey in order to be accepted, but we obey because we are accepted by God in Christ. As a result, once more, an attractive and contagious, contagious joy in Jesus uh, will draw people to the Savior whose glory radiates through transformed lives made new in Christ, per 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17. Too many of our pulpits have jettisoned the proclamation of the gospel. Too many of our people have lost the meaning and the wonder of the gospel. We must get it right once again if we are to experience a Great Commission resurgence. The bottom line is this. No gospel, no Great Commission resurgence. It really is that simple. Number three, we must take our stand on the firm foundation of the inerrant and the infallible Word of God, affirming its sufficiency in all matters. Jesus said not a jot or a tittle will pass away until all of it's fulfilled. 
Jesus said the scriptures cannot be broken. Jesus said thy word is truth. Paul said all scripture is literally God breathed. And Peter said holy men of God spake as they were picked up and borne along by the Holy Spirit. Now hear what I have to say at this point and hear me well. Southern Baptists won the battle for the Bible that began in 1979. Wonderful men of God like Jimmy Draper, Paige Patterson, Paul Pressler, Adrian Rogers, and Jerry Vine spilt their blood and put their ministries on the line because they saw what the poison of liberalism was doing to our convention and its institutions. These men are indeed heroes of the faith, and what they did must be honored and never forgotten. However, the war for the Bible is not over. And the war for the Bible will never end until Jesus comes again. Launched by Satan in the Garden of Eden, has God said, will continue to be under assault. And we must ever be on guard and ready to answer those who question its veracity and its accuracy. Already, as Greg Beal warns us in the book, The Erosion of Inerrancy. Evangelicals are backing away from or redefining into insignificance the idea of inerrancy. The fact is, a younger generation, those of you who are sitting out here today, you will eventually face this challenge. And you must not squander away precious theological ground that is absolutely essential to a Great Commission resurgence. When I was in seminary in the 1980s, I heard our former dean, now with the Lord, Russ Bush, make a statement that is absolutely correct when he said, the question of biblical inspiration is ultimately a question of Christological identity. You say, what does he mean by that? He meant this. Because Jesus believed the Scriptures to be completely true and trustworthy, to be the completely true and trustworthy Word of God, for you to question the inerrancy of the Bible is an actuality to question Jesus. Even Rudolf Bultmann understood that Jesus believed the Bible, his scriptures, to be the completely true and trustworthy Word of God. Bultmann just simply thinks Jesus got it wrong. Well, at least he was right in what Jesus believed. And so, again, hear me and hear me well. To question the Bible is to question Jesus. And to question Jesus is, if not heretical, blasphemy. And spiritually, it is always suicidal. And so what I will say at this point may not be popular with all of you. I really don't quite care. Are you questioning inerrancy? Then you need to repent. If you deny inerrancy, then go and join another denomination. You're not welcome in the Southern Baptist Convention. Go join those who question the Bible, who then question the miracles, who then question the deity of Christ, and who are now plunging headlong into oblivion and insignificance. Jesus is Lord. What he thinks about everything is what we need to think about everything. He believed the Bible. and We dare not back up or negotiate that particular truth. Number four, we must devote ourselves to a radical pursuit of the Great Commission in the context of obeying the great commandments found in Matthew 22, verses 37 through 40, where simplified, we're taught first, love God, and then secondly, love your neighbor. 
I believe a devoted follower of Jesus Christ gets excited about, one, reaching the nations for Christ, two, reaching our nation, the United States of America, for Christ, and three, doing so in a manner that is biblically, theologically sound and driven. Why? Because all of these are in the DNA of the Great Commission. However... A real Great Commission resurgence will not uh, just possess Great Commission DNA. It will also be alive with Great Commandment DNA as well. You see, the ultimate motivation for the Great Commission is love of God and a passion to be on mission with Him. After all, the Great Commission is His mission. But flowing out of love for God and also with a genuine love for people, something too many of us have lost along the way, we will pursue them with a love that once again radiates what God has done for us in our lives. Anything less than that will absolutely devastate our witness. In other words, if we don't love them, we have no right to expect them to listen to us. If we do not serve them, we have no reason to expect them to trust us. Now, much can be said here, but I'm going to narrow in on one particular area that I'm concerned about. And again, I suspect it will not be popular with all. But again, I'm convinced and convicted that what I will say reflects accurately the impulse and the thrust of the word of God. A great commission resurgence is not the same thing as a moral reformation. And it is certainly not a revival of political Activism. Now, do not misunderstand me. I've said it too many times from this pulpit right here. It is our Christian duty to be good citizens, to vote our convictions, to promote good and godly policies. Just think back to the end of slavery. Uh, the right of all Americans to vote and civil rights legislation. And quickly you come to realize that Christians need to be involved in the fabric of society. However... Our commission is to promote the gospel, not crawl in bed with the government, political parties, and politicians. As John MacArthur so well says, true Christianity is more concerned with saving souls than it is with gaining votes. Rather than concentrating on political issues and debates, believers should be consumed with their responsibility as Christ ambassadors. Here's the bottom line, brothers and sisters. Governmental legislation will not stop the moral plunge of our nation and the world, but the gospel will. And therefore, our hope is not in Republicans or Democrats. It is not in Congress or Capitol Hill. Rather, our hope, the world's hope, is in Calvary's Hill and a crucified and risen Savior whose name is King Jesus. Love for God. And love for our neighbor demands that we not get sidetracked by political machinations. Neither Jesus nor his disciples exhausted their time trying to change the government. They spent their time trying to change the souls of men. We must do no less. Indeed, we must never forget that Jesus said before Pilate, My kingdom is not of this world. And so if we love Jesus as we should... We will pursue sinners as we ought and pursue them as he did. We will not condemn them. That is God's business. We will love them. We will serve them. And we will tell them of a Savior who cares for their soul. Indeed, I suspect that the silence of our gospel witness 
may be an evidence of the coldness and hardness of our hearts. The Great Commission and the Great Commandments, they always go hand in hand. Number five, we must affirm the Baptist Faith and Message 2000 as a healthy and sufficient guide for building a theological consensus for partnership in the gospel, refusing to be sidetracked by theological agendas that distract us from our Lord's commission. Indeed, Paul said in 1 Timothy 6, 3, and 4, Consent to healthy words and do not be obsessed with disputes and arguments over words that simply lead to strife and evil suspicions. Now, let me be very specific and very precise in this particular area, lest I be misunderstood. Question. What do we as Southern Baptists agree on doctrinally and theologically? The answer is, praise God, a lot. For example... We affirm the inerrancy, infallibility, authority, and sufficiency of the Bible. We affirm the triune God who is omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent. We affirm God as creator and reject naturalistic evolution as nonsense. We affirm both the dignity and the depravity of man. We affirm the full deity, perfect humanity, sinlessness of Jesus, the Son of God. We affirm the penal substitutionary nature of the atonement as foundational for understanding the cross work of our Savior. We affirm the good news of the gospel as the exclusive and only means whereby any person and is reconciled to God. We affirm the biblical nature of a regenerate church witnessed in believers' baptism by immersion. We affirm salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. We affirm the reception of the Holy Spirit at the moment of regeneration, conversion, and the blessing of spiritual gifts for the building up of the body of Christ. We affirm the literal, visible, and historical return of Jesus Christ to the earth when He will manifest fully His kingdom. We affirm the reality of an eternal heaven and eternal hell with Jesus as the only difference. We affirm a sanctity of life ethic from conception to natural death. We affirm the sanctity of heterosexual marriage, the goodness of sex in marriage, and the gift of children. Lots of them. And we affirm, we affirm the complementary nature of male-female relationships rejoicing in the divine ordering of them for the home and the church. And the list could go on. Now, there are also some things that we do not all agree on doctrinally and theologically. For example, the exact nature of human depravity and the transmission of the sin nature. Of the precise constitution of the human person. Are you a dichotomist, a trichotomist, or some type of modified monist? Of the issue of whether or not Christ could have sinned. His peccability or impeccability. We at least all agree he didn't, else you're a heretic. We all agree on what we call the ordo salutis, the order of salvation. Uh, we, we, I mean, we don't agree on that. We don't agree on the number of elders and the precise nature of congregational governance. Uh, we don't all agree on the continuance of certain spiritual gifts and their nature. We don't all agree on does baptism require only right member, born again, right meaning, believers, right mode, immersion, or does it also require the right administrator, ever how you define the right administrator? We don't all agree on the time of the rapture, whether it's pre, mid, post, partial rapture, or pre-wrath rapture, though most of us know the preview is correct. <laughs> Moving on. And we don't agree on the nature of the millennium, premillennial, amillennial, postmillennial, and of course, saving the best for last. We're not in full agreement about Calvinism, how many points one should affirm or redefine and then affirm. Now, what are we to make of all of this? 
And can we, and if so, how can we move ahead and work together? I believe no one has been more helpful in helping us think rightly and wisely in this area than Dr. Al Mohler of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. His paradigm of what he calls theological triage gets to the heart of how we can think well theologically, in fact, in the textbook that most of you will use in theology on pages 930 through 32. He lays out with great clarity what he means by theological triage. Let me just jump to that. He says, first of all, there are what he calls first order doctrines. And these are fundamental and essential to the Christian faith. In other words, the pastor's theological instincts must seize upon any compromise on doctrines such as the full deity and humanity of Christ, the doctrine of the Trinity, the doctrine of the atonement, essentials such as justification by faith alone. He says where such doctrines are compromised, the Christian faith fails. And he is certainly correct. He then says there are second order doctrines. These are those that are essential to church life. In other words, I really can't plan a church. With a Presbyterian brother or sister, no matter the fact that they believe in inerrancy, that they believe in penal substitutionary atonement, uh, that they believe in expository preaching, that they believe in grace, uh, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. I can't plant a church and I can't actually work together in a church with someone who believes it's all right and indeed necessary to baptize babies. I am not questioning that they are my brother or sister in Christ. I'm not questioning that at all. I'm just simply recognizing that second order issues many times prevent us from working together in the life of a local church. They don't define the gospel, but they do define what we would believe to be proper and correct church order. But then there are third order doctrines, and these are those that may be grounds for fruitful theological discussion and debate. But they do not threaten the fellowship of the local congregation or the denomination. Indeed, Dr. Moeller says Christians who agree on an entire range of theological issues and doctrines may disagree over matters related to the timing and sequence of events related to Christ's return. Yet such ecclesiastical debates, when rightly understood to be, while to be deeply important because of their biblical nature and connection to the gospel, do not constitute a ground for separation among believing Christians. Al then says it this way. Dr. Muller says, without a proper sense of priority and discernment, the congregation, and I would add a denomination, is left to consider every theological issue to be a matter of potential conflict or, at the other extreme, to see no doctrines as worth defending if conflict is to in any way be avoided. So let me put my perspective on this and we'll move ahead. Some things are worth fighting for and fighting over. And some things are not. Some things are worth dividing over. And some things are not. And at the Building Bridges Conference that took place a little over a year ago, now a year and a half, I put it this way and I have not changed my mind, quote, Our agreement on the Baptist Faith and Message 2000 is an asset, not a weakness. It is a plus, not a minus. If I were to pin my own confession, it would not look exactly like the BF&M 2000. But then I do not want, nor do I need people exactly like me in order to work together for the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the building of his church. 
Our confession is a solid foundation for a sound theology that avoids the pitfalls and quicksand of a straitjacket theology. We do not want or need a theology that we do want. We do want, excuse me, we do want and we do need a theology that rules out of bounds things like open theism. Universalism and inclusivism, faulty perspectives on the atonement, gender role confusion, work salvation, apostasy of true believers, infant baptism, and non-congregational ecclesiologies, just to name a few. And yes, we do need to have parameters that rule those things out of bounds when it comes to being a Southern Baptist. These theological errors have never characterized who we are as Southern Baptists, and they really have no place in our denomination today. So let me again say it. Inerrancy is not up for debate. The deity of Jesus and his sinless life, not up for debate. The triune nature of God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, not up for debate. The perfect atoning work of Christ as a penal substitute for sinners, not up for debate. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone is not up for debate. A regenerate church, not up for debate. Believer's baptism by immersion, not up for debate. The glorious historical and personal return of Jesus Christ is not up for debate. The reality of the eternal heaven and an eternal hell, it is not up for debate. There is nothing soft about this kind of theology. And therefore, we must avoid a soft theology at all costs. But because our passionate commitment is to the glory of God, the Lordship of Christ, biblical authority, salvation by grace through faith, and the Great Commission... We should be able to work in wonderful harmony with each other because we do have a sound, adequate theology. The BFNM 2000 is a solid confession for building theological consensus and for fulfilling the Great Commission. Now, let me say this to you. The promise of the conservative resurgence was that, was that eventually we would find common biblical, theological ground that would be more than enough to get us focused on the Great Commission. I think we have it. And I, for one, am ready to move ahead, building around this theological consensus. And I believe the vast majority of Southern Baptists are more than willing to move ahead together around it as well. Number six, we must dedicate ourselves to a passionate pursuit of the Great Commission of the Lord Jesus Christ, across our nation, and to all nations answering the call to go, disciple, baptize, and teach all that the Lord has commanded. Romans 1, 5, Paul said, Through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. Now get ready to get uncomfortable. Southern Baptists were born in part out of a racist context and a racist heritage. That will forever be to our shame. By God's grace and the Spirit's conviction, we publicly repented of this in 1995 on our 150th anniversary, but there is still much work to be done. The Southern Baptist Convention remains mostly a middle class, mostly white network of mostly declining churches. If you doubt what I'm saying today, then look around. Just look around this room. Or, if you like, attend our annual Southern Baptist Convention meeting. Or, if you like, visit a state convention meeting. Or, if you like, just drop in on 99% of our churches and you will find that my thesis 
is irrefutable. In fact, it's amazing to think, isn't it? We can integrate the military. We can integrate athletics. We can integrate the workplace. But we can't integrate the body of Christ. Shame on us. Shame on us. I have a very deep conviction here. Until we get this right, we have no reason to expect that God will visit us with revival. And we have no reason to believe that a great commission resurgence will reach heaven and be heard by our God. Furthermore, the world will continue to scoff at us because they will see the sham that unfortunately is all too real. And I could spend not only the rest of my time this morning, I could take you through the afternoon and tell you story after story after story after story, including some that I experienced this week that still reveal too much embedded bigotry and racism in the hearts of too many white Southern Baptists. That's what we say to folks. We will love you and welcome you if you look like us and if you act like us. I have a question. What kind of gospel madness is that? Starting at home, then, we must pursue a vision for our churches that looks like heaven. Yes, we must go around the world to reach Asians and Europeans, the Africans and the South Americans. But we must also go across the street, down the road, and into every corner of our local mission field where God in grace has brought the nations to us. This will demand, you knew it was coming, this will demand that the little boys sit down and the men of God stand up. Reaching, for example, Muslim men will require Christian men. They won't be one any other way. Our precious sisters can win Muslim women to Christ, but they will never get a hearing with a Muslim man. More of us need to be going. More of us need to step up to the plate and do what God has put in our hearts. But for some reason, we keep putting it off, putting it off, putting it off. I will be honest with you. This will demand a radical reorienting of lifestyles, priorities, commitments, and perspectives. Business as usual as a denomination and as individuals will not be an option if a real Great Commission resurgence is to take place. Number seven, we must covenant to build gospel-saturated homes that see children as a gift from God and our first and primary mission field. Psalm 127, verse 3 and verse 5 says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. Now, again, listen and listen well. Southern Baptists have been seduced by the sirens of modernity in a very important place. We have been seduced in how we do family and how many we should have in the home. For example, we've been seduced with respect to the gift of children. Too often now, even our churches, children are viewed as a burden, not a blessing. Less is best, or at least less is better. And the result is we have less children. In fact, Al Mohler showed me a statistic that may not answer everything, but can almost document the gradual decline of baptisms within the Southern Baptist Convention, and it parallels the decline of the number of children that Southern Baptists have. 
I still remember when Bertha Smith came to Southwestern, scared the daylights out of us because she said that if you were involved in birth control, you were sinning and God killed Onan for it, might kill you too. I mean, I'm 22 years old, and here's this, you know, gray-haired missionary woman, you know, chewing on us like that. And, I mean, I'm kind of shook up. But then she said this, listen, we will never win the battle against the uh, religion of Islam because they have children and we don't. And it's a very simple matter of mathematics. Eventually, they will outnumber us. She was a prophetess. You say, I doubt that. Then look at Europe. Islam will take over Europe, and it will never fire a shot. They will simply outnumber them as white Europeans have less or no children, and Muslims continue to have them at a very large, healthy rate. You say, what are you saying? I'm saying you need to have a bunch of kids. (laughs) It has a missiological motivation. (laughs) So you need to have a bunch of kids. But let me move on. We've been seduced with respect to the importance of motherhood. And they go hand in hand. Too many of us likewise buy into the false philosophy that it is an inferior calling. They can be delegated at least in part to another. We've also been seduced with respect to the role of dad. I watch any television show today. Dad is a bumbling idiot. He's not necessary, maybe even needed. So you say, what? does a good home look like? I'll tell you what a good home looks like, and it's very simple. Number one, it loves Jesus. <laughs> Number two, it honors God. Number three, it teaches the Bible. Number four, it casts a vision for spiritual greatness. Number five, it just has fun. And finally, it lets go of the children so that they may soar for the glory of God. Too many of us are still giving our children a, a false pseudo-vision of what real greatness is. It means going to college, getting a degree, making a lot of money, when you will never find that vision for spiritual greatness in this thing called the Bible. Let me again make us all uncomfortable. Will you pray for God to call your children and even your grandchildren into vocational ministry? Will you pray and ask God to call your children to the nations far away and to the hard places as a missionary? Will you get a God with perspective for life, marriage, family, and what really, truly matters? Number eight, we must recognize the need to rethink our convention structure and identity so that we can maximize our energy and resources for the fulfillment of the Great Commission. 1 Corinthians 10, 31 reminds us, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Now, I have no doubt this particular issue will be the most um, controversial, and it will generate the most debate and discussion and even opposition. However, it is here that most Southern Baptists today, and especially a younger group of Southern Baptists, feel the most frustration. And so I'm just going to jump in and try to handle it with attack but with an honesty as well. Too much of the Southern Baptist Convention is aiming at a culture that went out of existence years ago. Using mid-20th century methods and strategies, we just can't understand why they are not working in the 21st century. In addition, too much of our convention has become both bloated and bureaucratic. Indeed, it is easier to move some things through the federal government than it is the Southern Baptist Convention. 
Overlap and duplication in our associations, state and national conventions is strangling us. If folks in the pew knew how much of their giving stayed in their state, they would revolt and call for a revolution. Now, praise God. I live, we live in a state where our convention leaders are trying to do something about this. And they are moving things and pushing things in the right direction. But their tribe must increase. We waste too much time and too many resources. And many are fed up saying enough is enough. The rally cry of the conservative resurgence was we will not give our monies to liberal institutions. Now the cry of a great commission resurgence is we will not give our money to bloated bureaucracies. Tom Rainer has challenged us to do simple church. I want to challenge us to do simple convention. Let's streamline our structure, clarify our identity, and maximize our resources. You say, how? I put the following forward as only food for thought and conversation in the days ahead. I have six suggestions. Number one. Is there not a way to have annual meetings on the national and state levels that are attractive, inspiring, and worth attending? (laughs) I confess, if I were not required to attend, I'm not even sure I would go to our yearly meetings. So much of what we do is unnecessary, and it will never build momentum for the Great Commission. Number two. Is the name Southern Baptist Convention best for identifying who we are and what we want to be in the future? Three, do we need all the boards and agencies we currently have, or could there be some healthy and wise mergers? You say that might involve Southeastern. If that's what's best for the kingdom of God, then so be it. Number four, do we have a healthy structure and mechanism for planting churches that will thrive and survive past A few years, almost 50% of our church plants die. We've got to do better than that. Fifth, do we have a giving program that fairly and accurately reflects the gifts many Southern Baptist churches are making to the work of our denomination? Sixth, are we distracted by doing many good things, but not giving our full attention to the best things? Church planting in the United States? pioneer missions around the world, and theological education that starts in the seminaries but finds its way to the local church, I believe, is a three-legged stool most Southern Baptists would gladly occupy. So let's let others do what they can do. Let us focus on what only Christ has commissioned us to do. Let's prioritize and simplify. Let me flesh that out just a moment. Our mission will require aggressive and intentional cooperation in church planting. The churches we plant must be sound in their doctrine, contextual in their forms, and aggressive in their evangelistic and mission orientation. In order to make this work, we need renewed commitment from our churches, local associations, and our state conventions. For local associations, this is an opportunity to demonstrate that they are still needed and that their existence matters. In days gone by, local associations provided local churches with mission resources and advice that are now being provided by other institutions, other networks, and other people. For state conventions, this provides an opportunity to return to their roots and stem the tide of churches that are bypassing state conventions because they refuse to give money 
to what they consider to be a bloated and inefficient bureaucracy with red tape that is a mile long. We need to kill and bury all of our sacred cows. And we need to start talking publicly about what so many people are whispering about privately. Nothing less than a new vision and a new paradigm for effective and efficient cooperation will inspire a new generation to get on board and to stay on board. Number nine, we must see the necessity for pastors to be faithful Bible preachers who teach us both the content of the Scriptures and the theology embedded in the Scriptures. Second Timothy reminds us, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, I charge you, preach the Word. Now, I'm encouraged here. Today, I sense a uh, renewed hunger uh, for, uh, for Bible teaching and theology among a younger generation. And this is a wonderfully positive sign. The fact is, with the waning of a cultural Christianity that cannot survive the attacks of a sophisticated and growing what, Christ, uh, what, what the Newsweek calls a new muscular secularism, only faithful teaching of the Bible will equip 21st century believers to stand strong as defenders of the faith once for all delivered to the saints. We need a new battalion of well-trained expositors who preach the whole Bible book by book. Chapter by chapter, verse by verse, phrase by phrase, and word by word. Walt Kaiser was exactly right when he said, One of the most depressing spectacles in the church today is her lack of power. At the heart of this problem is an impotent pulpit. I am absolutely convinced that a genetic connection exists between an impotent pulpit and an indifference concerning the Great Commission. Too many of our people know neither the content of Scripture nor the doctrines of Scripture. Preaching the cross of Christ, His bloody atonement, and the lostness of humanity is often absent. Some pulpiteers simply want to be cute or edgy. If the Bible is used at all, it is usually used as a proof text out of context with no real connection to what the biblical author is saying. In my judgment, such men are guilty of nothing less than ministerial malpractice. Topical preaching, narrative preaching, emerging preaching, and yes, even some types of doctrinal preaching fundamentally suggest by their method and practice, you know, the Holy Spirit. He should have packaged the Bible differently. This is spiritually ignorant at best and arrogant at worst. What our churches need is expository preaching that is text-driven and honors the truth of Scripture as it was given by the Holy Spirit. Mark Dever is most certainly correct. The first mark of a healthy church is expository preaching. It is not only the first mark, it is by, it is far and away the most important of them all because if you get this one right, all the others should follow. I love what the Westminster Dictionary of 1645 says about preaching. Quote, the true idea of preaching is that the preacher should become a mouthpiece for his text opening it up and applying it as a word from God to his hearers in order that the text may speak, be heard, making each point from his text in such a manner that his audience may discern the very voice of God. Guys, we'll move ahead to what you have on the overhead. Preaching that does not present the gospel 
and call men and women to repent of sin and place their faith in the death and resurrect of Jesus Christ is not gospel preaching. Hear me well. We are not Jewish rabbis or scribes. Good and faithful exposition will be Christological in focus. It will carefully interpret each text in the greater context of the grand redemptive storyline of Scripture, showing Jesus is the hero of the Bible. We are not journey guides, self-help gurus, positive thinkers, entertainers, comedians, or liberal or conservative commentators parroting the wisdom of the world. We are gospel preachers, Jesus intoxicated heralds. Any theology that does not compel you to plead with men to be reconciled with God is a theology not worth having. And any preaching that does not expect the living and powerful word of God to produce results and usher in conversions is preaching that should be retired to the graveyard where it rightfully belongs. Bad preaching will sap the life of a church. It will kill its spirit, dry up its fruit, and eventually empty it. It is preaching that will torpedo a great commission resurgence. Number 10. We must encourage pastors to see themselves as the head of a gospel missions agency who will lead the way in calling out the call for international assignments, but also equip and train all their people. Now, please don't miss this. Equip and train all their people to see themselves as missionaries for Jesus, regardless of where they live. Again, this may be controversial, but it comes, I believe, out of Scripture. Missions is not a ministry of the church. It is at the heart of the church's identity and her essence. Indeed, the strategic and biblical importance of the local church in this regard must be captured. Our churches do not exist to serve the Southern Baptist Convention. That includes me. The Southern Baptist Convention at all levels exists to serve the church's end of discussion. Indeed, the local church is to be ground zero for the Missio Dei. Here is the spiritual outpost for the invasion of enemy territory as we reclaim lost ground for its rightful owner, King Jesus. Thus, a new vision that I pray will grip the churches of the Southern Baptist Convention is simply this. Every church, a church planning church. Every church, in fact, I can put it in two statements. Every believer, a missionary And every church, a church-planting church. Now, guys, it has to start at the top. Pastors must be seized by a vision for the strategic importance of their calling as the head of a gospel mission agency called the local church. This will involve, one, being used by God to call out the called who have an overseas assignment given by our commander-in-chief, the Lord Jesus. But secondly... Partnering in strategic and vibrant church planning that assaults the major population centers of North America, following closely the pattern of the Apostle Paul. This alone, I believe, will inspire and energize a younger generation because of the excitement entailed in new work. Furthermore, and we must never forget, urban centers such as New York, Washington, Boston, L.A. and Seattle are both powerfully influential in national and international affairs. And secondly, they're almost completely bereft of evangelical influence. A third thing, working to help revitalize existing local churches 
so that we do not lose a meaningful past and squander massive assets built by our parents and grandparents. I was a little bit blind to this for a while, but I now realize that we are foolish if we surrender what will literally amount to billions of dollars of assets of older churches and their structures and simply focus upon new churches. Do I think we need to focus on new churches? Yes. Do I think we need to be driven by church planning? Yes. But we do not need to neglect the calling for some of you to go back in and revitalize old established churches and once more make them gospel lighthouses that shine brightly for the Lord Jesus Christ. Fourthly, then, that means training all our people, all our people, to see themselves as a God-called missionary, no matter what their vocation or location happens to be. God has gifted them. And we must equip them for their service of ministry and missionary service in their community, their school, their workplace, and their places of recreation. Now, hear me. Religious practices and traditions are not the same as missionary gospel living. We must help our people recognize the difference. And indeed, I don't think anyone has addressed this better than Tim Keller, who in the missional church says this, quote, The missional church avoids tribal language, stylized prayer language, unnecessary evangelical pious jargon, and archaic language that seeks to set a spiritual tone. The missional church avoids we-them language, disdainful jokes that mock people of different politics and beliefs, and dismissive, disrespectful comments about those who differ with us. The missional church avoids sentimental, pompous, inspirational talk. Instead, and this is so good, we engage the culture with the gentle, self-deprecating, but joyful irony the gospel creates. You see, humility plus joy equals gospel irony and realism. Thus, the missional church avoids ever talking as if non-believing people are not present. That is a great statement. That is a great statement. The missional church avoids ever talking as if non-believing people are not present. If you speak and discourse as if your whole neighborhood is present, not just scattered Christians, eventually more and more of your neighborhood will find their way in or be invited. But unless all the above is the outflow of a truly humble, bold, gospel-changed heart, it is all just marketing and spin. Let me hasten, number 11. We must pledge ourselves to a renewed cooperation that is gospel-centered and built around a biblical and theological core and not methodological consensus or agreement. Paul says that we are to be like-minded of one accord of one mind. He says in Philippians 2, 5, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now, again, this is where the rubber hits the road. So, again, hear me and hear me well. There are essential and non-negotiable components of biblical worship and work. But there is no specific biblical style or method ordained by our God. Look all you like. It ain't there. What will unite Southern Baptists in the future will not be style, methodology, and preference. Any past hegemony of methods and programs is gone. And it is not coming back. How we do things in the future will be expansive and diverse. 
The key will always be that what we do is filtered through the purifying waters of Scripture so that we honor Jesus and glorify the Father in all that we do. Now, hear me. Different contexts will demand different strategies and methods. Cultivating the mind of a missionary, we will ask, what is the best way to reach with the gospel the people I live amongst? So, let me be specific and precise. Waycross, Georgia, will look different than Las Vegas, Nevada. Montgomery, Alabama, will look different than Portland, Oregon. Boston will be different than Dallas. Memphis will have a different strategy than Miami. Various ethnic believers and social cultural tribes will worship the same God, adore the same Jesus, believe the same Bible, and preach the same gospel. However, they may meet in different kinds of structure, wear different kinds of clothes, sing different kinds of songs, and engage in different kinds of ministry. The point is simply this. We must treat the United States missiologically and do so with the same seriousness that our international missionaries treat their people groups missiologically. As long as it is done for the glory of God, has biblical warrant and theological integrity, I say, praise the Lord. So let's stop griping and whining and fussing and fighting about organs, choirs, choir robes, guitars, drums, coats, and ties, and get on with the real issue of fulfilling the Great Commission. If we seek to build a consensus around styles or methods, we will continue to balkanize, fracture, and lose important ground. But if we build a consensus around Jesus and the gospel... We can, we will cooperate for the advancement of God's kingdom, and he will bless us. Theology should drive our cooperation, not tradition. The message of the gospel will unite us, not our methods. Finally, and maybe even along with number one and two, the most important, we must accept our constant need to humble ourselves and repent of pride and arrogance, jealousy and hatred, contentions Lying, selfish ambitions, laziness, complacency, idolatries, and other sins of the flesh. Pleading with our Lord to do what only He can do in us and through us and all for His glory. James 4, 6 says, God resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. You say, what do you mean by these sins you've just listed? I'll be specific. Pride. There are those who say, I don't need the insights of godly seasoned ministers. They're old. They're at the retirement age. I can do without their counsel or their wisdom. There are others who say, look at what the Southern Baptist Convention is and look at what she has done. Let me be clear. God does not need the Southern Baptist Convention. The Southern Baptist Convention needs God. We are not to think more of ourselves than we ought. Arrogance. Older ministers say, we know what's best because we've been there and done that. So you younger brothers and sisters just need to sit back and be quiet. When we need you, we'll let you know. That's arrogant. And I'm a 52-year-old making that statement. Jealousy. I don't want God to bless others and leave me, leave us out. Hatred. Loathing others you ought to love. 
contentions, fighting over things that are not essential and acting as unchristian, maybe even more unchristian than the world. Lying, purposefully misrepresenting others, are not taking the time to accurately understand who they are. Selfish ambition, wanting a place of leadership rather than earning a place of leadership. A love for running a church or denomination more than a love for serving it. Laziness, not doing the hard work of ministry because it is costly. Complacency, being satisfied with the status quo and being in denial that we are in a crisis moment that could be fatal. Idolatries, putting anything or anyone in the place of Jesus and his agenda for his church. So I conclude. I am convinced we can be better than this. I'm also convinced that we can do more together than we could ever do apart. That's why I am in this to the end, wherever and whenever that may come. However, we have got to stop doing everything we do for us. We have in many ways as Southern Baptists become a selfish people. We must once more start doing what we do for others, beginning with Jesus. Here's the simple fact of the matter. God is going to turn the world upside down. We can be a part of this if we are more passionate for his glory than our conveniences and comfortableness. God is going to turn this world upside down and we can be a part of it if we humble ourselves and focus on loving each other and working with each other to seek and save the lost. Older believers need to acknowledge we need the energy and fresh ideas of a younger generation. But younger believers need to realize we need the wisdom and experience of our parents and our grandparents. We really do need each other. But finally, we desperately need the heart of Jesus. We need the eyes of Jesus. And if we can just get to that, we will have what we need to move forward in a great commission resurgence. We will have what we need to move forward as a mighty great commission army going forth to do battle for the captain of our salvation and the savior of souls. If not, if not, we will find ourselves on the sidelines playing silly and meaningless games while God's mighty army moves on without us. Brothers and sisters, I have found the army I want to fight with. It's called the church. I have found the commander in chief I want to serve. His name is Jesus. And I found the enemy I want to destroy. It is Satan, sin, death, and hell. And so this morning, starting here, I challenge you. Will you join me? Because there really is victory for the taking. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I have done something unusual today. And it's the only second time in my life that I have preached in a seminary chapel and not brought a biblical exposition. And yet... For months, you have been stirring in my heart and soul, as well as others, that we need to bring some clarity to what we mean when we talk about a great commission resurgence. And it is my prayer that at least in a small way that uh, what I've shared today has helped that at least a little. Lord, the bottom line is I want to be on your team. I want to be on your side. I want to be doing what you want me to do. And Lord, I believe that you've called us to function under the banner of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. I believe you've called us to stand on the rock-solid foundation of an inerrant and infallible Bible. 
Now, I believe you've called us with one hand to kind of close it around a great confession of faith. And with the other hand, to reach out to the lost people of this world and share with a passion and a zeal and a fervency the only message that will change their eternal destiny and the only message that will truly change their life, that being the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, that's a, full, a fourfold uh, position I think will work. Under your lordship, standing on the word, embracing biblical theological truth, and reaching out with a passionate heart to win the lost to Jesus. Lord, if it happens nowhere else, may it happen in my life. And Lord, if it happens at no other institution, may it happen here at Southeastern. But Lord, I really believe that uh, what we sense taking place today in our denomination is going throughout all of our seminaries, going throughout all of our agencies, and beginning to make its way across our nation to many, many, many churches. Lord, may you be our commander-in-chief. May you be our king and our sovereign Lord. And may we indeed report daily, I'm here, Lord Jesus, King Jesus. What are your orders for this day? And might it be that by your amazing grace and goodness, you will not pass the people called Southern Baptists by, but you will allow us to be a part of what you're doing in fulfilling the Great Commission until Jesus comes again. We ask and pray this in his name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We cover your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.